0: Hello, I am Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before and share their work, ideas and opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines and into the research behind them, and most importantly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. You can subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform, and don't forget to leave a review, as it really helps others to find the show. If you would like to come on the podcast or know someone else who would be great, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Blaine Murphy. Blaine is an academic psychologist in Belfast, Northern Ireland and he did his PhD on the psychological impacts of being diagnosed with a pre-malignant disorder, specifically focusing on MGUS. I came across him when I did a quick Google, as you do, on the psychosocial impact of MGUS. I was intrigued as I'd just come off the phone to a patient who had spent six months scared shitless about the disease that she'd been diagnosed with before. It really struck me that although I deal with MGUS patients every week, sometimes in a rather blasé manner, I didn't know the first thing about the impact that what we would consider to be a rather unimportant diagnosis can actually have on someone's life. This is a fascinating discussion and for me, it's been practice changing. So before we go to the interview I'll very briefly recap MGUS for those of you who either don't know or should know and have forgotten. MGUS stands for Monoclonal gammopathy of Undetermined Significance. It's caused by a clone of plasma cells, a number of mature B-cells that are genetically identical That are inappropriately churning out a ton of identical antibody it's the antibody that we'll find in the blood when we do a serum protein electrophoresis finding a strong band in an electrophoresis gel that shouldn't be there if this is at a low level a patient has no clinical features of multiple myeloma such as high calcium renal failure anemia or bone lesions and less than 10 percent plasma cells in the bone marrow then we call this mgus although we don't usually do a bone marrow if we're not too worried People are often found to have MGUS when a serum protein electrophoresis is done, when myeloma or sometimes lymphoma is thought of a diagnosis, when patients present with features like high calcium, renal failure, anaemia, fractures or bone pain, that are often attributed to something else or nothing. As part of myeloma screening, we also look for fragments of antibodies called serum-free light chains, and similarly if patients have an abnormal serum-free light chain ratio and no features of myeloma, we call this light chain MGUS. Finally, a couple of small print things. IgM myeloma is extremely rare, but IgM-MGUS is common. This is because people with IgM-MGUS are generally at risk of developing lymphoma rather than myeloma, although it does very rarely happen. The final small print thing is that some myelomas do not make any protein at all. These are called non-secretory myeloma, and some make very little called oligosecretory myeloma. So if you have a patient with features of myeloma but no paraprotein or light chains then the diagnosis can still be considered especially if you've checked the immunoglobulin levels and these are really low. We're bothered about MGUS because as I've said it's a precursor to myeloma. Every patient that eventually gets myeloma has MGUS first but in reality I think of it as part of the normal aging process as over three percent of over 50s have MGUS if you look hard enough. However, the ballpark risk of developing myeloma from MGUS is quoted as about 1% per year, although this can be much lower in low-risk subtypes and higher in the high-risk subtypes. Practice amongst haematologists and clinicians around the world is varied, but many of these patients are followed up lifelong with monitoring every three to 12 months depending on their risk. Some of this happens in primary care, but often monitoring is done by haematologists, especially for those with high-risk subtypes. Okay, that's enough of me. Let's hear from Blaine. Okay, welcome back to Don't Just Read the Guidelines. I'm joined by Blaine Murphy, who is a uh, Northern Irish uh, researcher um, who has specialised in qualitative methods of looking at psychosocial impacts of chronic um, pre malignant conditions, namely MGUS, which is how I came across him. Um, really, thank you so much for joining us, Blaine.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. Great to get the chance to disseminate on kind of anger stuff.
0: And I must apologize for cancelling on uh cancelling on you last time, but my wife was in active labor. So I think it was a reasonable, a reasonable excuse.
1: Yeah, I've heard worse excuses for not <laughs> making this book, but allow that, no problem.
0: Anyway, we're talking now, and I've got a four-week-old baby downstairs, so hopefully she remains quiet. Um the reason i had you on a, i had wanted to come on the podcast was um i think i had a sort of a brain wave a few months ago and thought blimey it, you know these mgus patients i'm seeing in clinic has anyone ever sort of done some research about what this you know the psychosocial impact of this because people are testing people for mgus or for myeloma willy-nilly and we're we're coming across these patients and then no one really knows what to do with them apart from sort of follow them up over the course of their lifetime and it's you know, significant burden on the NHS and it's a significant burden in our clinics, um, and I think a lot of us as haematologists sort of write them off a little bit, and you know, it's, it's more of an inconvenience. So you get on with patients dealing with patients who are who are more sick. Um, but clearly, having read some of your work now, this is a minefield, um, and I'd really like to delve into that. And I think this is going to be really valuable for sort of fellow haematologists actually to to try and think differently about these sorts of patients. I hope that's okay.
1: Yeah, that sounds good.
0: So your PhD was essentially on MGUS. You must be the only person in the world to have done a PhD on MGUS.
1: Uh, I'm not the only person in the world. uh, (laughs) But mostly it is because of the of research team I was involved with. So my supervisor, Professor Leslie Anderson, who's now in Aberdeen, uh, had a PhD student, Dr Charlene McShane. Who later become a postdoc, who st- started work more so on the epidemiological aspects of MGUS, and then building a registry of MGUS patients within Northern Ireland. And as part of this kind of similar idea to you, Charlene Kenowenton, has anyone ever looked at how this was how this affects patients, and started the assessing the impact of EMGUS study and kind of got some way through and kind of got the study started, but there was quite a few problems with ethics and kind of the slowness of ethics to come through. So it ended up going from like a small study on the side of her PhD to kind of the start of a full-blown PhD for me, which was very lucky. Uh, And then kind of that progressed. As I continued that study and then moved on um, to other studies looking at the professionals involved in that, and then a
0: wider view of Angus patients across the world later on. So, what's your background? How did you get to that PhD? What was the journey?
1: So, my background I trained in psychology undergraduate at Queen's University Belfast, then moved on to a kind of clinical psychology master's kind of a lot of my back, family background is kind of mental health and impact uh, kind of a local mental, hospital, our local mental health hospital and uh, there's about five generations of us have worked in that hospital.
0: Wow.
1: Uh, so the kind of the mental aspect was always interesting to me and then this opportunity come up to look at kind of A condition that I could not pronounce when I went to interview. (laughs) Uh, That was when you get asked an interview, what questions do you have? How do you pronounce this was one of my early ones. I had no idea. I continued to muck it up for the first six months. (laughs) Uh, But it was was an opportunity to do a PhD and do research. And I always liked that aspect of it. Mm. And as I looked a little bit further into this it was kind of clear that there wasn't much material on this and doing something new is always new, wild and wonderful is something that has always attracted me and
0: found its way to me. So I'll give you the opportunity just to explain what MGUS is.
1: So MGUS is monocolonial chemopathy of Undetermined Significance it is a pre-malignant, so a pre-cancerous condition, closely related to multiple myeloma. But it's also related to Waldenstrom's macroglumemia, which I think I got right there. Uh, so patients with MGUS, they have higher M protein in their blood, and this is usually found in incidental tests for other conditions. Uh, Kind of some of the patients that we came across had like high blood pressure. I think one of them broke his leg, uh, and kind of the test was ran. There was this M um, protein spike, and they got, "Oh, you have MDS." Like, eh? uh, what? Uh, so where's it going? So an MGUS has a risk of about one, just about one to one and a half percent of progression to multiple myeloma cancer. Every year, and that that risk is consistent over at least twenty five years, mm-hmm. uh, which is Kyle Two thousand two, two thousand three. Okay. Uh, so over uh, over twenty five years, an MGUS patient would have a twenty five percent chance of progressing to multiple myeloma. Mm. And MGUS is usually diagnosed in individuals over seventy, and there's an increase in prevalence with age although you do find it in some younger patients we did come across a couple in their twenties, couple in their thirties, wow.
0: but they are very rare cases. I often describe it to patients as sort of part of the normal aging process. Um, it is it is very difficult to explain. And, um, you know, I always usually say there's an abnormal protein in your blood. It's coming from some abnormal cells in the bone marrow, but these happen with age and, um, It's unlikely that you'll ever have a problem with this, but there is that risk of myeloma and we can risk stratify and we can identify those patients who are very low risk and those who are at higher risk, which is always helpful, I think, for the explanation. But I think clinicians probably do struggle, especially in the age of phone calls. um, And actually your work touches on phone calls, but for phone calls for that initial presentation, that initial consultation it is quite difficult to explain. Um, I think we'll touch on that later, and I'll ask you if you've got any advice about you know, how best to explain it to patients. Um, but I think maybe if we we start, and you've talked me through your PhD briefly, let's start with the PhD and, 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 and dissect that a little bit. I think that's a good structure. Um, so uh, you, you did a literature review on MGUS, I think, to start with. Um, but your second chapter, I think, sounds quite interesting. It was a systematic review of the quality of life of, you know, the psychosocial impact of of other pre malignant conditions. I mean, why is this? Why is this a problem? Why are we bothered?
1: So, uh, why are we bothered? Pre malignant conditions are a bit like the kind of ignored child of the cancer family, but <laughs> like they're nearly like a middle child, despite being. <laughs> a pre, these individuals are usually given this diagnosis, and this is reasonably consistent across the literature, that these individuals are given the diagnosis of a pre condition. It's maybe not explained that overly well to them, and it is quite a, a complex idea. This it's like, it's cancer, but it's not, mm. or it's not cancer, especially in some such as Doctor carcinoma inside you, uh, which it depending on who you're reading on a certain day of the week is a cancer or is not a cancer. This is breast and, cancer. Uh, yes, it's yeah. breast. And it's has very ardent kind of sides on both sides of it that can get quite heated. But the reason that these patients are important is that they still have to deal with this idea of the cancer world that they are now in, despite mm. not having access to any of the supports. Uh, and be that kind of through the health service, through charities, or even kind of talking, because if they talk to a cancer patient, they're not the same. Cancer patient is very different than a pre-malignant patient. Mm. But the pre-malignant patient, sees this patient, sees the cancer patient, sees the effects of treatment and goes, that can be me or that will be me and that terrifies them. Yeah. So it's a mix of kind of understanding and or not understanding what they have and kind of not having the support to be able to understand the differences between them and the cancer, but also how the chance and kind of numerical risk Mm. is also a big thing in that and the understanding
0: of that. Is this a well-researched area when you did the review? Uh,
1: Over kind of all of the sites, I think I had, was about 14 different sites. Uh, There was a hundred... 27 papers, I think. Okay. Uh, So there's a lot of papers, but I think that the science and the research is still at a very early stage in most of them. Uh, Like there is an issue. Okay. This is quite, and it's very similar. Like all of them tell the same story, but it just hasn't
0: reached anything beyond the early stages, I think, in any of the research. I think it's really interesting, you know, where these where these papers are published. They're not published necessarily in very high impact journals. Yet you'll have a drug that's of extremely dubious benefit, you know, that's that's then published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and actually, if you if you there's some of the lessons that I've learned from your paper, if we enact those into our care tomorrow, we can do it without any ethics. We can do it without any cost, and actually, we can make a huge impact on quality of life very quickly. Um, for Next to no funding. Um, yeah, unfortunately, for some reason, this this research isn't valued as much. Is that, a, is that a feeling you have?
1: Yeah, I know with the Ames paper in particular, which is the qualitative paper uh, on AMS patients, we it's a very small sample size because mm. being based in Northern Ireland, getting access to patients can be difficult, and mm. we also don't have that many people.
0: There's yeah. only
1: it's one point eight million. So there's less people in Northern Ireland than there is in kind of some of the boroughs in London. Yeah. Just don't have access to people. Yeah. Uh, and it could be two and a half hours away. Uh, yeah. But in terms of the publication, if you look at as the hierarchy of evidence, the qualitative stuff comes quite low in yeah. that, despite the fact that is where research should start. It's not really... It should work. Qualitative research, my opinion, is where it should start, and you get an idea what is there, what are the main issues, and then kind of later on as well, you need to go back into qualitative to kind of understand certain minutiae and niches in it. Mm -hmm. I work both sides as a mixed methods researcher, so you value both, but it's difficult to publish at times in this
0: with small numbers. I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast, not that there are many, but a lot of them will not understand qualitative methods really. I mean, use things like theme analysis and data saturation. I don't know if you can give us a very brief overview of how, how you go about a, a qualitative study like this where, and I'll just, just to sort of summarize, Blaine looked at, um, Sort of a small number of MGUS patients, and essentially interviewed them and found uh, l- looking for their experiences and and uh, and thoughts on their diagnosis and and how what was managed well and what was managed badly. But just just tell us how you go about that kind of paper because, I, I mean, I, I basically have no idea.
1: So kind of the very basic run through uh, as I explain it is that you kind of identify a problem, or something that's of interest. In this case, it was the impact on angus patients. So then the next step is kind of what questions do you want to ask? So kind of in the AM study, we wanted to look at their experiences of the care. And that was kind of the, the start of it. So you go through kind of ethical procedures and That stuff, which is quite similar to what normal research Mm -hmm. studies would go through with a bit less understanding sometimes from the panel. And then you find people and find patients and you ask them, so how do you find your experience of care? Uh, Where is my thing? Just find where I am. But so you'll ask them about that and you'll ask about so how is this explained to you? And quite early on in the Angus research, before I actually started it, it is very clear there was issues with understanding their diagnosis, uh-huh. or even being able to say what the thing was, uh, which is very Angus specific. Yeah. But, and Kenny, you develop then your interview schedule on that and look at what's of interest and in what is coming up. Very very quickly you will have some experiences that are repeated to you quite often. If you do 10 interviews, it'll either come up in nine of them or 10 of them. You're like, this is consistent. Uh, and then you reach thing called data saturation, which is we're not going to get too much more out of this. I could ask another hundred people and this is going to be the answer for the vast majority. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you'll have things called deviant cases, which are different, like one or two off. It's like, this is just, this is very different, which are very informative as well, as you can look a bit deeper and how they are different. And after you've done all these interviews and you kind of tweak as you go on, you come into your data analysis stage and kind of the researcher will look at these look at the questions, look at the answers and to try and find kind of relevant themes running through the running through the answers. Uh, So our main themes looked at the understanding of information and interaction with healthcare. was kind of two of the themes and these were really strong through nearly all of the interviews. And you do that in collaboration with someone else so it needs at least two and we have qualitative research has its own checks and balances and quality assurance measures. Uh, kind of Clark and Brown, thematic analysis is kind of the main one focused on, but there's also others, which I can't remember the name of, it's been a couple of years. It's so okay. there is these checks and balances that you go to make sure that it's not just m- me Having an agenda and going through with that, that there's me and another researcher, maybe a third researcher, has looked at this and gone. These are the main things. This is what the patients want to tell people, and what is important kind of in this realm. And that is a very, very basic
0: overview of qualitative. Okay, um, I think it might be worth this, just recapping those themes. Then, what did you what did you find in uh, in that paper?
1: So kind of the first thing looked at the kind of psychosocial challenges that patients underwent, and that's from kind of the start of the diagnosis period to kind of later on and kind of living with the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So very much when they were first diagnosed, there was a lot of kind of there was the shock of their lives and kind of they were like, we don't understand this. It's like, what have I got? It's cancer.
0: Like, oh my god i think that's really striking um you know you use the sh- there's the quote isn't it? The shock of my life and um that's amazing I, if, as a hematologist you, you know you, you look, deal with emgus and you think oh it's just sort of this indolent thing that's associated with normal aging and you you do write it off so i think that's an amazing lesson for hematologists actually yeah the, like they
1: are walking in like in Northern Ireland, the main procedure is you get a letter to attend haematology. Uh, kind of within the Belfast area, you go to what is known as the Cancer Centre.
0: Yeah, it's in, the same with us. Hospital.
1: Yeah. I like, everyone knows the Cancer Centre. It's big, yellow building in the middle of South Belfast. Everyone knows where it is. And they're going in there without really an idea of what's going to come. And then they get told, this big, long, complicated name and the term cancer is somewhere stuck in. Yeah. And, like, and then they don't understand or hear the rest of it. Yeah. Because a lot of the haematologists kind of, that I talk to have very kind of, similar opinions to yourself. It's, like, it's not that big of a deal. And it's yeah. not. like From a healthcare point of view, it's usually not. But for these patients and the understanding early on, it can be because yeah. this is a big thing for them, uh, and this kind of anxiety sticks with them for about
0: six months. Wow! Uh, because that is the period between appointments. I had a, I remember a patient from a couple of months ago, and she, um, I think I was doing the twelve monthly follow up for low risk MGUS after she'd been seen sort of twelve months before and not really understood it, and she'd been anxious beyond all recognition for the preceding six months building up to this appointment and i spoke to her for about 90 seconds i think i said look don't worry about it i'm going to explain it again it must have been longer so i explained it again um sent her some written information and she was really happy um and it's 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 crazy to think that someone's life has essentially been ruined for a year with the diagnosis of emgus and the statistics on it, is something like three percent of people over fifty have MGUS. Um, although mm. obviously not all those not all those are diagnosed. But if you look looking for it, you will see it. Um, so to me, though, that's that's normal aging.
1: Yeah, like it, it's like it's quite common, mm. and like three percent of over fifty is quite common. Yeah, but like it's for patients Kenneth, that don't have the medical knowledge and kind of don't understand it early on Mm -hmm. and that kind of leads into one of the later things that it's this is a big thing what is going on and understanding that early on and reinforcing that message in the first appointment Mm -hmm. usually solves most of the psychosocial impact and then it's only really a thing the week they have their bloods and between their bloods and the so Belfast I think all of Northern Ireland now runs the telephone clinic. So most of the lower risk Amgris patients are dealt with by trained haematology nurses. The patients get to know the nurses and the nurses know them. And they call every six months get their bloods, get the call two weeks later as only that week or two, that's a bit more anxiety is like, has this changed? Yeah. You might need
0: to worry. And then they'll forget about it for another six months. Okay. What were some of the other themes you found?
1: So, the second theme is kind of a lot of these themes are heavily intermixed, but it's the patient's knowledge of us. So, kind of, there was, we did focus groups as well. And one of the funnier points where it was like a group talk exercise, like therapy what do we call the condition we have that yeah. we are participating in a research study about and kind of half didn't have it right wow which is was quite a, quite amusing i think
0: yeah i'll just touch on i think most in your your study i mean those those patients were uh, i think a select group of fairly well-educated younger patients weren't they as well so you know that's that's even more striking that you've got a, a well-educated i mean they all had gcses or o-levels i think pretty much a lot had higher education degrees they're all between 40 and 70 so these aren't old uh, crumbly little old ladies who can't hear properly these are people who are in the prime of their lives and they've got you know well-educated performing good jobs who still don't understand it so something's gone wrong
1: yeah and the biggest thing that we identified and is to be honest, if this was put in most of the places, it would probably solve most of these and put me out of a job. <laughs> but it was an information booklet. Yeah. A two-pager yeah. that went through it in quite simple language is what they missed. They didn't have. Crazy. Um, they When they went looking online, uh, and this is kind of one of the later studies, we looked a bit more closely. They couldn't find anything. And everything they found was had big headlines of multiple myeloma on it. Yeah. Not MGUS. Yeah. Which scared them to life. It scared the life out of them. Because that's a very different diagnosis. Yeah. But, and because, I kind of to go back about the information, because the patients didn't understand it, they couldn't talk to their friends or their family about it. Because... Yeah. Uh, firstly they didn't want to appear like they didn't want to appear stupid because they didn't really know what they had and they also the other thing is they didn't want to worry other people because they didn't want to be treated with kid gloves that Mm. oh this like they have angers, they're going to die bad ideas they were very afraid of that a number of them
0: and off the so off the back of of this if you were involved in sort of designing a service or improving a service for everyone's patients what are the sort of the, the changes you would make obviously an information leaf to every patient would be ideal i mean that's a cheap cheap thing to do and as we've discussed already massive improvement on quality of life the only other things you do i mean this business of being invited to the cancer center i always think is is sketchy and not a lot you can do about it maybe if you've got any thoughts
1: yeah, it's kind of something that we ba- banter, battered about a bit mm. in how do we present this because it's maybe more of a Northern Ireland problem, but you kind know, of when we went further out, it was also a problem in other places. But that's where haematology is based mm. uh, in kind of Belfast, so that's where people have to go to see a haematologist. Yeah. Uh, it's just. It's a, it's a difficult one to work on that mm-hmm. aspect because it requires far more service changes than is really needed for something like emigres. Yeah. But it's uh, the other main kind of recommendation we made was telephone clinics. Yeah. So that a patient is diagnosed by the hematologist, have their first appointment, maybe a second, depending on the patient but then moved on to telephone clinics, which has been in for about eight years now, I think. Okay. No, that's wrong. Well, to has been 10 years from Belfast. Because uh-huh. uh, it's so long since the research was done. And kind of the telephone clinic, and they have a helpline as well, that if anything ever happened, they can ring the nurse, and the nurse will answer either straight away or the day. None of them ever used it but it was there. Okay. Uh, But it was it reduced burden a lot. There was less stress. They didn't have to go to a cancer centre. They didn't have to park in the city hospital in Belfast. And for anyone outside, didn't have to go to Belfast for the day for 10 minutes.
0: Yeah.
1: Wait an hour, 10 minutes. Yeah. And this has probably changed a lot since COVID as well. I'd say it's far more telephone based now, but... Expanding and using that telephone service is will lower costs because you don't use someone like yourself as a registrar to talk to EMGUS patients unless they need it. Yeah, Maybe
0: nurse. Um, if I I'd appreciate you may not be able to help with this, but if, if let's say I'm seeing an EMGUS patient tomorrow, are there any things that you would say definitely don't do, and are other things you'd say definitely do do? Uh, would you use the word cancer?
1: We asked about this and kind of, we asked hematologists, like, how do you describe this and do you use cancer? I think you have to. Uh, but I think you need to be careful on how you use it is the biggest thing. It needs to be put as this is a remote possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of, it's, while not helpful, overly it's like COVID. If you get yeah. COVID, you have kind of the 1% chance of death kind of, if you're unvaccinated. m mm-hmm. is the same. There's no vaccine, but it's the <laughs> <Not> 1%. <yet. laughs> it's, you'd probably yeah. be fine. But it's when to use the word
0: cancer, I think, in that more so than anything else. When you say you're probably fine, do you, th- do you feel like people deal with that uncertainty very well? I get the impression they don't from you, from your paper.
1: Yeah, uh, kind of look, kind of the whole thesis and the whole research stuff. Uncertainty, I think, was the, is the key mm. in it. Because when we later looked at smoldering patients, smoldering, multiple myeloma, which is, has a 10% risk of progression, so you're 10 times more likely, they were fine. <laughs> they were not a bother on these individuals. Really? They, whenever we did their quality of life stuff, it was very similar to population means. And Angus patients were down in the gutter, way lower. Because there was no smoldering patients had come to terms with us. Yeah. They had more contact with hematologists and specialists. But they were like, I'm probably going to get myeloma. It's multiple myeloma. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the uncertainty. It was, I'm probably going to get it within five or six years so it's, yeah. the uncertainty is the key and reducing that uncertainty can probably help patients okay more than
0: anything else it's a it's a massive eye-opener for me talking to you because you know it's just that you think well, oh, how can emgus affect someone's quality of life it's you know it's asymptomatic but clearly clearly it does and actually i think we share the response we, it's our it's our fault really because we're not we're not clearly not explaining it well enough
1: yeah unfortunately we do a study and we
0: found <laughs> tell me about that study
1: So we looked at kind of hematology professions in Ireland and we asked how they described MGUS to their patients. So most of it was about an abnormal protein or to kind of use a bit more local terms, it's a wee protein in the blood. (laughs) And it's just, it's like a mole that kind of, these are kind of what, the haematologist and the nursing staff said, it's like a mole. uh, And that's what it is. We will watch it. And when they're talking about risk, there's differences between what they would say. Some would kind of use the cancer term analogy. Others would start with blood condition and then press further, move on towards blood cancer. Mm -hmm. But It also depended on the individuals. There was kind of broad consensus that patients who are quite elderly, and quite infirm, didn't really go into angers too much.
0: Yeah.
1: At that stage, there was other conditions that were more important. It needed to be kind of on their files, but it would cause unnecessary worry when it was unlikely to be relevant to their healthcare in the future.
0: In the other study, you looked at GPs. Do you think GPs are in a, a better position than haematologists to explain this or, or not?
1: Uh, no, because to be honest, the GPs didn't really know what it was. Yeah. Uh, and because of this uh, this was a survey, so it was an online survey ran at Wonka, which is the... What's Wonka? It is the World... Or... Where is one guy uh, Acronyms kill me. World Organization of National, it's the World Organization of General of GPs. Right. And okay. So GPs from all across the world are answering this. And obviously, if they seen it was about angus and blood conditions, we are only going to get individuals that kind of thought they knew something already or, or were very interested in research. So the bias, this bias in a sample like this is quite high. And can, you have to be aware of this when interpreting yeah. binds of these. But even, even so, these were probably more likely to know. And there's still a quite low knowledge of MVS. Okay. Which is also fair. It's small condition. They're only likely to come across it once a year. And there's far more pressures and general practice at the moment than endless patients. Yeah. But you kind of how, again, the information sheet that I will bang on about and I've banged on in every presentation I've ever done on this. Yeah. We'll have the GP too, because all the GP has to do is read that and they'll have a good idea. And if four of the questions come up, they can look it up. But for most of the patients, that basic knowledge will sustain them until they want to research
0: more yeah okay fantastic um i think we've probably exhausted your thesis actually um there was a fifth chapter wasn't there on something else with the pip study um yeah this isn't published yet just tell me a little bit about that before we finish
1: yeah we have to keep this top secret before it comes out
0: don't worry no one listens to this
1: (laughs) But the PEP study kind of was the culmination and the piece to resist thesis, which sounds a lot grander than it is. But it was building on the kind of research we had conducted and asking a, a larger thing, because with qualitative, as I said, you get an idea of the issues. But moving on beyond that, we need to get, is this just Northern Ireland? Or did we come across 14 patients that had this tough to kind of a couple of hundred patients, which was the largest ever work on either Angus or Mm Snowdron. We found the same things, It very consistent findings throughout everything. It was quite hard to write at times because it was neat. I couldn't copy and paste. It was was very, very similar things. Mm. And we were able to show quality of life detriment. Wow. And higher anxiety in MGOS patients. Uh, kind of one of the key things we looked at was again was the information and what the patients want to know. Uh, and the patients really wanted to know things. Uh, again, this is, this was biased in how we did the research, that it was pushed through online forums, Facebook groups. And these were patients who already would have had a high engagement and look for materials. Okay. But it's the point still stands that these are especially, these were younger patients because the average age of embers is over 70. Yeah. Our average was in the mid fifties, I think. Yeah. It was mid fifties. And these patients want to know about this. They're tech savvy. Yeah. They know how to search on the internet. Yeah. But some of the stuff scares them because it's not easy to access. For UK patients, they will find US ones. And that's different healthcare system, different kind of terminology. And they will come across kind of the scary stories that we all come across yeah. on the internet and be terrified of that. Yeah. Which doesn't help where what they want is information.
0: Yeah, It's so sad, isn't it? It's so sad that we're, we're not doing this right. And it's so under-researched, it's underfunded. Um, I think you guys have done an amazing job at identifying this as a problem um and um share it with me today because you've you'll affect you've affected one hematologist so that's uh, that's a good that's a good place to be and i'm sure others have read it and i'm sure others will be very interested in this actually and go back and have a look at your research and hopefully that'll change how we practice i mean going back to work tomorrow i'll certainly be talking about this and um i think we should all be trying to do a quick audit and quality improvement project about the patient inflation leaflets we need to check that they're going out with all the letters um i know i try to do that and send the myeloma uk leaflet out which is really good but then again it's branded by branded with myeloma um which can be can be uh difficult but i think as long as that's been explained well enough um that it's related to myeloma but isn't um my feeling is that's reasonable it'd be really interesting you know to go back to this kind i know you're talking about MGUS phds in the future for people it'd be really interesting to go back to go and look at you know uh video consultations and and see what works well and what what doesn't work well because there needs to be a there needs to be better training on on how to deliver these sorts of diagnoses definitely because it's bread and butter we do this every week every week um so thank you thank you so much for sharing that with me um what are you up to now blaine um
1: so i've taken a circuitous route uh kind of around and working as kind of a post job within queen still but my research has moved on to understand it's kind of it kept in health, but more so about it's moved into organic food. I've been doing some work also kind of in food systems and agricultural systems in Africa and some of the range uh, and working on other projects looking at other types of food and food consumption in Ireland. My mother gets very confused in what I do is like, I thought you did psychology. I thought <laughs> you did cancer. And then I'm talking about organic food. But kind of a research perspective, most of what we do is, met- most of what I do anyway, is methods-based. Okay. And it's just where has funding, where where can I keep, where can I get the next six months from as a postdoc? Yeah. Uh, Which is a consistent problem. And I've been lucky for the last couple of years working, but
0: where I am, but it's always about six months. Yeah. Incidentally, how did you fund the PhD? How was that
1: funded? So, uh, my project was funded by the Northern Ireland Department of Education and Learning, which has changed its name since. And I can't remember their actual new name, but it was funded by the government uh, okay. in the Center for Public Health in Queens.
0: So, did you did have much interest from in the charities, in you know, Myeloma UK, et cetera?
1: Uh, yes, we did have contact with Myeloma UK and Bloodwise. Uh, Bloodwise used to be something else, or is something else now. I think it's Blood Cancer UK now. Okay. Uh, was kind of the main ones. And then we had kind of some contact with them but a lot of our, kind of that was in dissemination of the survey later on. Yeah. But most of our work was with some of the healthcare trusts within Northern Ireland, particularly the haematology nursing staff in the Belfast Trust and the South Eastern Trust were extremely helpful to us in the project.
0: And we couldn't have done it without them. Excellent. Well, in the future, I think I, I I've spoken about Heme Star before, which is this UK-wide network of trainees interested in predominantly non-malignant hematology research. But we're always interested in this sort of thing. Um, if you or any colleagues need a network to disseminate a survey into hematology registrars and even to consultants, let us know because we'd be more than happy to help. Yeah.
1: No, I think definitely kind of the colleagues I was working with uh, Professor Leslie Anderson and Dr. Charlene McShane kind of. Do a lot of work within hematology and KLM networks are vital, which I don't know if it existed when I was doing my PhD, but I never
0: no, heard of it. No, we've been going since 2017, so it's, uh, it's, only, it's only a baby, yeah. baby organisation, but it's um, been put together by Pip Nicholson, who's uh, um, in Birmingham and um, has worked really hard. But yeah, we're... Um, we're um we're, we're we're getting there we're getting there we're um <laughs> picking up picking up a bigger mailing list and things and uh people are really starting to starting to notice and be interested so um but it is a powerful way of disseminating surveys and things so just just let us know
1: thank you very much for the opportunity to come and talk about kind of the research uh especially when i haven't talked too much about it over the last couple of years that's a read up again myself No, it
0: was, it was an absolute Not pleasure well
1: anyway. at times but yeah. I think we got there <laughs>
0: No, it's great. It was an absolute pleasure and I'm, uh, I'm sure that I've learned that. Um, val- valuable lessons tonight and uh, I'm looking forward, really looking forward to sharing them with everyone else. Well, that was Blaine Murphy talking about his PhD on MGUS. It was a real eye-opener for me and I think the main thing I've learned is simple things go a long way, like an information leaflet. I'm going to put the link to his really interesting paper in the show notes and i'm really looking forward to our future episodes and looking forward to seeing you again don't just read the guidelines is for education and entertainment only and should not be taken as medical advice i certainly can't guarantee the factual accuracy of the content nor do my guests views reflect my own if you notice any errors please feel free to tweet me at richard booker If you like these podcasts, please take the time to write a review on iTunes, Google or wherever else you listen. It will really help others find the podcast. See you soon.